Open your Bible to Romans chapter 14. If you don't have a Bible with you, grab one from the pew rack right there in front of you. If you don't have a Bible at all, consider that our gift to you. Read it. Um, There's a a passage in Scripture where the angel tells a man to eat that book, (laughs) eat that scroll. And uh, we want to do that in 2016. We want to ingest God's Word. We want to know it. We want to love it. Last week in Romans, we talked about our motivation for doing and living the way Paul has been instructing us since the beginning of chapter 12. We talked about the importance of knowing the time in which we live, recognizing that the night is almost over and the day is drawing near. If we understand what time it is, we won't be sleeping when it's time to be awake. If we understand what time it is, we won't be caught in our pajamas, taking a nap when it's time to be in our armor, fighting a battle. We talked about how our life of following Christ, of being conformed more and more to his image, uh, that is <laughs> our sanctification. Our friends in Central Asia got cut off and they're calling back. And because of that, they have interrupted my notes. <laughs> Answer the phone so I can get back to my notes. So this process of, of sanctification being more and more conformed to the image of Christ, to his, to his lifestyle, has both a negative and a positive. There, there are some things that we must take off, and there are some things that we must put on. There are some things that we must be done with and put aside, and some things that we must pursue. And, and I hope that 2016 will be a year of both of those for us as a church. Uh, that in 2016 we will be putting off the old and putting on the new that we'll be laying aside the deeds of the darkness and putting on the armor of light, that we won't uh, consume ourselves with one or the other, but with both of these sides of the sanctification coin. This week we're going to look at an obstacle to unity within the local church. As Paul pastorally continues to give people direction about their living, uh, we're going to see that that, uh, there are some obstacles to unity within the local church. The text this week is timely, uh, it is relevant, It is confrontational, it is a bit controversial, and it is true. And my prayer is that we will have ears to hear what God has to say to us today. That I will have ears to hear what God has to say to me today. I think a lot of times we have ears to hear what God's word has for the person sitting next to us. Or for the person that's still at home. Or for the person that's somewhere else. We have ears to hear what God's word would say to them, but oftentimes we don't have ears to hear what God's word has to say to us today. And so I want us to to hear this word for us today, to apply this truth to us today. I'm going to read to you all of Romans chapter 14. It's really one big section. We're only going to study closely the first four verses today, but I want you to hear all of it so that you you get the context and you know where this is headed and and maybe some questions that will be raised today are are answered in the text later on. So read with me Romans chapter 14, starting in verse 1. This is what God's word says to us today. Now, accept the one who is weak in faith, but not for the purpose of passing judgment on his opinions. One person has faith that he may eat all things, but he who is weak eats only vegetables. The one who eats is not to regard with contempt the one who does not eat, and the one who does not eat is not to judge the one who eats. For God has accepted him. Who are you to judge the servant of another? To his own master he stands or falls, and he will stand. For the Lord is able to make him stand. One person regards one day above another, another regards every day alike. 
Each person must be fully convinced in his own mind. He who observes the day observes it for the Lord, and he who eats does so for the Lord, for he gives thanks to God. And he who eats not, for the Lord he does not eat, and he gives thanks to God. For not one of us lives for himself, and not one dies for himself. For if we live, we live for the Lord, and if we die, we die for the Lord. Therefore, whether we live or die, we are the Lord's. For this end Christ died and lived again, that he might be Lord both of the dead and of the living. But you, why do you judge your brother? Or you again, why do you regard your brother with contempt? For we will all stand before the judgment seat of God. For it is written, as I live, says the Lord, every knee shall bow to me and every tongue shall give praise to God. So then each one of us will give an account of himself to God. Therefore, let us not judge one another anymore. But rather determine this, not to put a stumbling, an obstacle or a stumbling block in a brother's way. I know and am convinced in the Lord Jesus that nothing is unclean in itself. But to him who thinks anything to be unclean, to him it is unclean. For if because of food your brother is hurt, you are no longer walking according to love. Do not destroy with your food him for whom Christ died. Therefore, do not let what is for you a good thing be spoken of as evil. For the kingdom of God is not eating and drinking, but righteousness and peace and joy in the Holy Spirit. For he who in this way serves Christ is acceptable to God and approved by men. So then we pursue the things which make for peace and the building up of one another. Do not tear down the work of God for the sake of food. All things indeed are clean, but they are evil for the man who eats and gives offense. It is good not to eat meat or to drink wine or to do anything by which your brother stumbles. The faith which you have, have as your own conviction before God. Happy is he who does not condemn himself in what he approves. But he who doubts is condemned if he eats, because his eating is not from faith. And whatever is not from faith is sin. Let's pray together. God, we do ask this morning that you would give us ears to hear what you have to say to us. God, forgive us when, when we read this book and apply it only to the people next to us. Only to the people across the road or across the globe. You've given this word for us today, and we pray that you change us with it. God, I pray that as we study your word today, you teach us the importance of loving one another. Show us what it looks like to disagree on secondary issues and love one another in spite of our disagreement. God, we want to be a people who live for you. We want to be a people who love one another. So we pray that you teach us what that looks like today by your grace, for your glory. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Amen. So today, uh, in this text, we're going to talk about what New American Standard Translation calls opinions. Uh, some other translations will talk about matters of indifference or disputable matters or matters of conscience. Scholars will call these non-essentials. In the vernacular today, we call them gray areas. Gray areas. And so before we get into those gray areas too deeply, there are a few things we must clarify. First, there are some things that are always wrong. There are some things that are always wrong because God in his word has declared that they are wrong. And there are some things that are always right. 
Some things that are always right because God in his word has declared that they are right. There are things that are not opinion. There are things that are not gray areas. There are things that are essential, indisputable matters. And when it comes to those things, we must hold them in a tight fist, without compromise, without giving, without tolerance even. There are some things upon which we must stand. But there are other things that are not so clearly defined in Scripture that God has not spelled out in black and white. And these areas are what we're going to be dealing with today. And I am convinced that we are not very good at distinguishing between the two. That we, as a church even, are often not good at distinguishing between what is an essential and what is a non-essential. What is a gray area and what is a black and white area. And we get ourselves in trouble when we treat essential things as if they're not essential and we also get ourselves in trouble when we treat, when we treat non-essential things as if they are essential things. And so I want us, I pray, that God will help us to be able to distinguish between the two. That over the course of 2016, over the course of the rest of our lives, we will be more and more clear about what is an essential thing that we cannot, we cannot compromise on and what is a non-essential thing that we must be willing to compromise, that we must have some tolerance in if we are going to live together as brothers and sisters. In the church at Rome that Paul is writing to, the issues, the non-essential issues that were causing trouble in that church were issues of diet. We read in the text there are some that eat vegetables only and some that eat anything they want. Another issue was evidently the observance of days, that there are, there are some days that are special and must be observed. And there are some people that say, oh, no, no, you can't do that on that day because that's a special day. Or, oh, no, 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 we've got to get together on this day because it's a special day. And then there are other folks who say, who cares what day it is? It doesn't matter what day it is. We can do anything because of our freedom in Christ, and these days are not so important after all. So the matters that Paul is dealing with in the church at Rome 2,000 years ago are matters of diet and calendar. In the church today, there are a million different of these non-essential issues, these matters of dispute, these opinions. I'll give you a few of them that you might be able to talk over at lunch. One scholar talked about theater. What, what movies should a Christian watch? Or, or should a Christian watch movies at all? Are there certain movies that are always off limits or are there some movies that are never off limits? Do we have great freedom when it comes to movies or do we have little freedom when it comes to movies? That's a debate that we could have, right? That's a debate that we're going to have in Harrisburg. Should, should I go to that new theater as a Christian, as a follower of Christ? Should I go to that new theater or not? There will be disagreements over that in this room, I guarantee it. And that's okay. It's okay to have those kind of disagreements in this room because we're not talking about the deity of Christ. We're not talking about the virgin birth. We're not talking about grace alone through faith alone in Christ alone. We're talking about movies, for crying out loud. And we can have some disagreements. So theater, cosmetics, should a woman wear makeup or not wear makeup? Should a woman wear only a little bit of makeup or a whole lot of makeup? Maybe the most hot-button issue is the issue of alcohol. Can a follower of Christ have a drink? Or should a follower of Christ never have a drink? Now, clearly, Scripture in this matter makes drunkenness expressly a sin. That is undebatable in the Scriptures that drunkenness is always sinful. But maybe it's a little more gray about what about a drink that doesn't lead to drunkenness? Are you a teetotaler? Total abstainer? 
or have a drink or two occasionally once in a while. That's a debate we could have in this room. That's a debate we have had in this room. Maybe here's some old ones. What about card playing? Maybe, maybe this is south. Some of these are regional even. What about card playing? I know, I know some Christians who would never play with the cards, with the kings and the diamonds and the spades and the clubs and those kind of things, but they'll play old maid. It's, it's, it's almost as if those specific cards with those specific uh, emblems on them are somehow evil. What about card playing? Can we play cards or not play cards? Can we play certain kind of card games and not, not other kind of card games? Or can we play any kind of card game we want because of Christ? What about dancing? Can a Christian dance? Can a Baptist dance? Can a Baptist dance? Should a Baptist dance? I'm looking around this room, and I want to say most of us should not dance. <laughs> I should not dance. Have you seen Joe Jackson? Have you seen uh, Seinfeld and Elaine dancing? We've got a video of Joe Jackson doing some dancing in this room one time. It should not have happened. What about, what about fashion? What about the clothes we wear? Uh, should I always wear a suit and tie to church? Should I never wear flip-flops? Should I only wear homemade clothes that are very simple and plain, or can I go to the store and buy the latest fashions? Uh, secondary issues that we could debate about. What about Bible translation? That's actually the one I'm going to use as my illustration today. Is King James the only translation that should be used? Can I use a more modern verse-by-verse -verse literal translation? Can I use a paraphrase like the message? What about that? Can we disagree on that and still be brothers? What about sports? Should a Christian play games? Should a Christian play games on certain days? What about music? Is there some music that's always off limits, some music that's never off limits? What about material wealth? Can a Christian have a lot of money? Can a Christian have not a lot of money? Should a Christian always buy presents or not buy presents at Christmas time? What about tattoos? You see where I'm going with all this? No, 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 we're not talking about the deity of Christ. We're not talking about the essence of the gospel. We're not talking about core Christian. We're not talking about doctrine at all, as a matter of fact. We're talking about matters of practice. And sure, there are matters of practice that the Bible speaks to in principle, but they're not matters that it lays out always in black and white. So what do we do? What do we do when we come to differing opinions on those things in this room? How do we get along with one another? The problem in the text today is not that people in the church have come to different conclusions. The problem is not that people have come to different convictions. Paul is not saying, eat the vegetables, only the vegetables. He never says to them, eat the meat, eat whatever you want. The problem doesn't seem to be that there's a difference of conviction, a difference of opinion. That's bound to happen, is it not? I mean, we come from different backgrounds, don't we? We come from different generations. We come from different regions of America. We come from different parts of the world, maybe even. We're going to come to different conclusions on some of these things. We come from different backgrounds. We come from, we live in different contexts. We have different jobs. We go to different places. We interact with different people. The problem is not that we have differing opinions or conclusions or convictions about these matters. The problem in this text and the problem in the church is the attitude. 
that people have toward one another, toward brothers and sisters in Christ who disagree with them. It's a war between the card players and the not card players. It's a war between the King James folks and the NIV folks. It's a war between the teetotalers and the occasional drinkers. And that's the problem. And we must be ready to go to war over essential matters. And we must stop fighting one another over things that make no eternal difference. Stop going to each other's throats over cards and clothes. That's the problem that Paul is dealing with, and that's the problem that we are dealing with in the church even today. Paul, in this text, is going to refer to these warring factions as weak. He expressly says that. He calls one group weak. He doesn't call the other group strong, but it seems to be implied. It seems like these, he calls them weak or strong in the faith. And by doing that, he's not referring to their trust in Christ. He assumes that all the people he's dealing with are Christians. They're trusting in Jesus Christ for their salvation. So it's not as if these guys who are, who are so intent about dietary laws are finding their salvation in keeping the dietary laws. If that was the case, he would rebuke them as strongly as he rebukes that same group of people in Galatians. But rather in this text, he says, accept them. The one who eats only vegetables, embrace him, love him, and welcome him. He doesn't say, kick him out of the church, treat him like a tax collector, let him be anathema like he does in Galatians. So there's something different going on here. When he talks about them being weak in faith, it's not about their basic trust in Christ. And when he talks about the weak brother, he seems to be talking about one who is bound up in rules and regulations. Likely most of these people in Rome are from a Jewish background. They're not seeking their righteousness through the law. They're brothers and sisters that are being welcomed, but they are still hung up on rules and regulations. Closely watching what they eat, closely watching the days of the calendar. The strong brothers seem to be those who are aware of and living in their freedom in Christ. They're not bound up by these dietary restrictions or the observance of days. And probably they are mostly from a Gentile background, which is interesting because Paul seems to fit into that category where he's not so much concerned about days. He's not so much concerned about dietary laws. He knows that in Christ everything is clean and he can eat anything he wants, right? But he's not from a Gentile background, is he? He's from the most Jewish background we've got. And so what I want to say to you today is there are weak brothers and there are strong brothers, but I don't know necessarily that our goal should be to be the strong brother. Because Paul is going to rebuke the strong brothers in this passage. I wonder if there's a third classification that we should really strive for. Not the one who closely watches the scruples. Not the one who is closely watching all the rules and regulations. And not the one who is flaunting some kind of freedom in Christ. But maybe the ideal situation is to be like Paul and say, I know about my freedom. I know about my freedom in Christ. I have I have amazing amount of freedom in Christ, but... I'm going to voluntarily, lovingly restrict some of those freedoms for the sake of the people around me. In other words, I could do that, and I know I could, and I wouldn't be condemned, not by God or even my heart, but because of that brother over there, I'm going to voluntarily restrict that thing out of love and grace toward him. 
guys. So, so when we talk about weak and strong, I don't want you to get this picture of, I want to be those guys, I want to be the strong guys. Strong guys get in trouble today even. There's a third better option that we'll talk about more later on as we move uh, further into this text. So look at verse 1. Look at verse 1. All that was introduction. This is going to be a long day. Verse 1 says, Now accept one another, accept the one who is weak in faith, but not for the purpose of passing judgment on his opinions. This is a call to action. This is imperative. This is a command. And he says, accept the weaker one. Accept him. And that is a powerful word. One scholar named Leon Morris says, The weak are not to be made to feel that they are barely tolerated or seen as second-class members of the church, that they are to be received with warmth and true fellowship. Christian love demands no less. Catch what he says here? He says, accept the weaker brother. Not just tolerate him, not ridicule him, we'll see that later on, but accept him, embrace him. It seems like this warm, familial relationship that he's talking about here. seems like make them full-fledged part of the church. If the weak brother is going to become stronger, how's that going to happen? It's going to happen in the context of relationships with a stronger believer, right? So you don't treat him like he's a child. You treat him like he's a brother because he is. So that's the call to action. Accept the one who is weak in faith. And then he says, but not for the purpose of passing judgment on his opinions. We've already talked about opinions, right? That's the gray areas, the disputable matters that we're talking about. And this idea of passing judgment seems to be the main issue. Not differing opinions, but the passing of judgment on those differing opinions. R. Kent Hughes says, judging one another is one of the favorite indoor sports of the Christian today. I'll read that again because it's funny and sad. He says, judging one another is one of the favorite indoor sports of Christians today. And we do it. We do it all the time. Can you believe what she was wearing? I saw so-and-so at such-and-such doing this or that. I thought they were a good Christian. Did you know he reads the King James Version? Do you know that he does his daily Bible reading in the message? He might not even be a Christian if that's the case. We need to be careful with this, folks. And we do this. We all do this. Again, this is not, there's not a word for your neighbor. Don't be thinking about, oh, yeah, I know how so-and-so does that. Yeah, I wish such-and-such was here so they could hear this. You do this. I'm asking you how you do it today. How are you guilty of this sin? So he says, accept the one who is weak in faith, but not for the purpose of passing judgment on his opinions. Verse 2 says, one person has faith that he may eat all things, but he who is weak eats vegetables only. Again, probably most of the people who were eating vegetables only came from a Jewish background. They were Christians, but they were from a Jewish background because a lot of Jewish people would say, I'm tired of worrying about whether this meat is kosher or not. It'd be easier for me to just not eat meat ever. And so I'll eat only vegetables. That seems to be the, the, the background from which these people are coming. And so he says, we've already talked about this. Some eat anything they want. And some eat only vegetables. And that's not the problem. The problem comes in verse 3 when it says, The one who eats is not to regard with contempt the one who does not eat. The one who does not eat is not to judge the one who eats. This is the major problem. On the one hand, the eaters regard with contempt the non-eaters. 
that phrase, regard with contempt, one word in Greek, and it is a powerful word. Regard with contempt, one scholar says, this is a strong term that carries the idea of looking on someone as totally worthless, as being nothing or less than nothing. It does not connote simply dislike or disrespect, but utter disdain and abhorrence. So the people who eat, the people who eat look at the people who won't eat the meat, and they say, you good-for-nothing, you ain't standing, you make me sick. I don't even want to be around you. You're disgusting. Now imagine this in the context of Bible translation. Imagine if, if these people who are not eating the meat, eating vegetables only, are eating it because they grew up in this system where they had to be really careful about what they ate or didn't eat, and now they have freedom in Christ to eat anything they want, but because of their background, they're still tied up to that. What, what, about, what about the person who grew up reading the King James? The King James translation of the Bible, it's all they've ever known. That's absolutely all they've ever known. And then someone else, on the other hand, who grew up with modern translations... From better manuscripts, some scholars would argue. And they look at the King James guy and say, Really? You're still reading that old thing? These and thous and thuses stinketh, doeth, doth. You really still reading that thing? I tell you, I tell you what it looks like today. This idea of disdain. It's the eye roll. That's how it happens in the church. King James, huh? Sixteen eleven, not even new King James, old King sixteen eleven King James. It's what happens, right? This is real, isn't it? This is real and it's wrong. It's wrong. He says you're not supposed to look at contempt with the brother who eats only vegetables. You know what I want to say to the guy who's reading the King James? Way to go. You're reading the Bible. This is a good book to read. And even if that's not my preferred translation for a number of reasons, I'm glad you're reading it. I'm glad you're reading it. So he says, the one who eats is not to regard with contempt the one who does not eat. Right? You see how it goes that way? The one with the greater freedom, looking at the one who is restricting that freedom and rolling his eyes at him and treating him like he's good for nothing. And then look at the other way it flows. He says, and the one who does not eat is not to judge the one who eats. So on the one hand, the eater regards with contempt the non-eater. And on the other hand, the non-eater judges the eater. And that's a vivid word too. It comes from the Greek word krino, which means to pronounce doom on a person. To deny someone's right to salvation. Imagine that in the Bible translation argument. The King James guy looks over at the message guy and says, you're going to go to hell because you're reading that. You could not possibly know Jesus because you're reading that. I heard a guy on the television one time. He was, a, he was a King James only guy. There's a difference between a King James guy and a King James only guy. And this was a King James only guy. And I heard him say, you can read about that in your so-called Bible. That any other translation might not really be the Bible. And if I'm building my life on some book that might not really be the Bible, that's a pretty good judgment, I'd say, right? 
So he says to the one who will not eat, don't judge the one who does eat. Don't think that you have the authority to say, that guy's not a Christian. And this happens in the church on a number of issues. One guy will say to the other, I can't even believe you. I don't even want to, I don't want, I don't have time for you. You're, you're nothing to me. And the other guy will look back at him and say, well, you're going to hell. Does this happen in the church or am I wrong? No, it happens. It happens all the time and it tears churches apart over matters that don't make any eternal difference. Read the Bible in whichever translation you would like. If you want to talk to me about which one's the best, I'd be glad to share with you. But let's read it in one translation or another. That's the issue in verse 3. The one who eats does not, is not to regard with contempt the one who does not eat, and the one who does not eat is not to judge the one who eats. And then in verse, at the end of verse 3, end of verse 4, he gives the theological foundation for all of this. He says, for God has accepted him. How dare you look at him with contempt? How dare you judge him? Because God has accepted him. Who do you think you are? Who do you think you are to say you're not a Christian because X, Y, or Z? Who are you to say you're not worth anything because of X, Y, or Z? If God has accepted them, what else matters? And that's what he illustrates in verse 4. He says, who are you to judge the servant of another? To his own master he stands or falls, and he will stand. For the Lord is able to make him stand. God has accepted the strong brother and the weak brother, the one who eats and the one who does not, the King James and the NIV, the movies and the, not, the G-rated movies and the R-rated movies. Some of you just can't handle that. Like what I just said about maybe a Christian could watch an R-rated movie. <gasps> you might not ever come back to First Baptist Church. Well, if that's the case, you didn't really hear what we're saying today. It is a good thing that our acceptance before God is not based on our diet or our Bible translation or our wardrobe or things that go in our belly or on our body. It's a good thing that our acceptance before God is based on his grace and we access it by faith, not by diet, not by doing, but by trusting and believing we are accepted before him. That's good news. It's a good thing. The idea in this last verse is that he is the master. And if his servant is acceptable to him, it doesn't matter what the other servants say. That if I am acceptable before God, it really doesn't matter what you think about my Bible translation. And again, we're talking here about secondary matters, right? Non-essentials, disputables, gray areas. We're not talking about black and white areas. We're not talking about essential matters. We're talking about those non-essential matters. And if I'm accepted before God, it doesn't really matter what you think about those non-essential matters. So here's the application today. Number one, we must learn to distinguish between essentials and non-essentials. We must learn to distinguish between essentials and non-essentials. We must learn to distinguish between black and white and gray areas. How do we do that? I'll tell you how we do it. We do it by a careful study of this book. In this book, he's mapped out the blacks and the whites. And in this book, he's given us principles to guide us in the gray areas. And so if we're going to distinguish between the two, it will happen by a careful study of his word. That's application number one. We must learn to distinguish between essentials and non-essentials. Number two, we must learn to hold tightly without compromise to essential matters. How do we do that? We do it by a careful study of this book. We do it by a careful study of his book. We do it also by finding encouragement from church history and the great cloud of witnesses that surround us. 
You want to read stories about someone who wouldn't budge on the deity of Christ? There's plenty of those stories. You want to, you want to read stories about someone who went to the stake over the exclusivity of the gospel? That Jesus is the only way? That it is grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. You want to read stories about someone who would not compromise? There are dozens of them. And be encouraged when you get ridiculed at your work for standing on those things. No one's taking you to the center of city and burning you at the stake for that stance. But others have. And you can be encouraged by them. We must learn to hold tightly without compromise on the essential matters. We do that by a careful study of his word and encouragement from church history. And hear me clearly. The lesson today, most of the lesson from the text today, is about tolerance. It's about tolerance on these secondary matters. But I want to say that much of the church today has taken tolerance way too far. Much of the church today and entire denominations today are tolerating things that should not be tolerated, doctrinally and practically, tolerating things that should not be tolerated. I am thankful for the Southern Baptist Convention and some of the stances, the uncompromising stances that have been made in my lifetime. I'm telling you, when I was a boy, this whole denomination could have gone a different direction. It could have gone a bad direction. And I praise God for men who stood on the truth of God's word and did not compromise. Men, men like Adrian Rogers, who's probably the one that you would know, who stood and said, no, 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 the Bible is the inerrant, infallible word of God. It is our sole authority in matters of faith and Christ. And I want you to know there are lots of other denominations who are saying, you know, we know what the Bible says, but... Anytime there's but after that, it's bad. I know what the Bible says, period. That settles it. Enough of that. We must learn to hold tightly to essential matters without compromise. And third, we must learn to develop godly Christian convictions concerning these non-essential things. We must learn to develop godly Christian convictions over secondary matters. I need to think. I need to think deeply. I need to think biblically. I need to think prayerfully about the clothes I wear. I need to think carefully about the movies I watch. I need to think carefully about the things I drink and eat. I need to think carefully about the places I go. Are you with me on this? We need, we need to think biblically and carefully and prayerfully about these matters. How do we do that? We do it with a careful study of this book. And through prayer. And in relationships. It is good for me as a young man every once in a while to say to an old man, what do you think about this? What do you think about these clothes? What do you think about this word? My grandma is here today, and I remember, my, I've told you this story before, I preached the very first sermon ever, and I used a word from the pulpit that she did not approve of. Do you remember this? You don't know what I'm saying? Good. I said booger. I, I said booger. And that was not an approved word, and she was offended, and she told me about it. Like right as everyone else was saying, 16-year-old Chris, great job. I see great things. You're gonna, you're gonna, you're, yeah, God's got his hand on you. My grandma said, I cannot believe you said that word. 
So we must learn to develop godly Christian convictions concerning non-essential matters. We do that by a careful study of his word. We do that by prayer. And we do that through consideration of the community in relationship with believers of different ages and even with unbelievers. Do you know there are some things we do that we're perfectly allowed to do and free to do that turn lost people off completely? And we don't have to do them. And we need to be careful as we think about these things. Think about believers and non-believers. Third, we must learn to embrace. This is the biggest lesson of the day. This is straight from the text. We must learn to embrace brothers and sisters who develop different convictions than we do. If you're a New American Standard guy, you need to be able to sit down with the message guy. You need to be able to sit down with the King James guy. If you're a King James guy, you need to be able to sit down with the NIV guy not essential matters and we often make non-essentials like they're essential we we often make matters that don't mean a whole lot eternally into matters that mean everything we might even say if he drinks he's going to hell i think we want to be real careful with that one in particular especially as we read the new testament we would disqualify a whole lot of folks who are our role models in the faith. And some of you are going to say, well, hey, I know what I'm having for lunch now. No, 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 no. You've missed the point altogether if that's your reaction to any of this. We must learn to embrace brothers and sisters who develop differing convictions. How do we do that? A careful study of this book will help. How do we do that? We do it conversations we talk to the guy who reads the king james version about why he reads the king james version this can be a fantastic conversation i know one guy in particular here who always reads the king james version and i think he would say it's because it's what i grew up with it's because when i read this i think of my grandpa and i hear my grandpa all the time sometimes there's great reason behind this thing Sometimes it's bad. I heard one guy say, I read the King James Version because if it was good enough for Peter and Paul, it was good enough for me. <laughs> and that's, that's a conversation killer, I'll just tell you. How do we do this? How do we embrace brothers and sisters who disagree with us on these matters? We do it through conversation. We do it out of love. I want to look at that guy and say, it's not what I would do. It's not what I would do. It's not the translation I would read. It's not the place I would go. It's not the way I would dress. It's not, but I love you. I love you, and I want good things for you, and you're my brother, and I'm not going to reject you if Christ has embraced you, and let's talk about it some more and, and uh, think it through. But if we still come out on a different page, that's okay, because I love you. And the third way we do this is we watch our attitude. The kids, the kids roll their eyes every once in a while. Nothing makes their mother more angry than that. The church needs to watch that. We need to watch that. Don't treat him with contempt. And don't judge him just because he differs with you on a secondary matter. Let's stand together and pray. God, we are very thankful today that our acceptance before you is not based on the translation of the Bible we read or the clothes that we wear or who
food that we eat. We're thankful today, above all things, that our standing before you is a gift of your grace that we receive by faith. And God, I pray for men and women and boys and girls in this room today who, who don't have a good standing before you. They're dead in their trespasses and sins. They're lost and without hope, headed straight for hell if nothing changes. God, I pray that today something would change, that everything would change, that by your grace you would teach them about sin, that by your grace you would teach them about your love, that Christ died on the cross for them, took their punishment, suffered the wrath that they deserve. He died as their substitute, and he beat death when he rose from the grave and can give them life. God, I pray for men and women and boys and girls that they would, they would believe, that you would give them faith to believe and trust in Jesus Christ for salvation, that you would give them repentance to turn away from sin and turn toward you, and that you would save them save them for your own sake, for your own glory. Save them. And God, I want to pray for the church that you will help us to learn to distinguish between essentials and non-essentials. That you'll help us to learn to hold tightly without compromise on the essentials. That you will teach us godly Christian convictions concerning great matters. And that you will teach us to embrace, to welcome, to accept brothers and sisters who develop different convictions than our own, that we would be a place of love, a place of acceptance, a place where it's safe to disagree on secondary things. God, I pray that you guard us from distortions. I feel like the evil one is going to come in after this day twist, pervert, and change the things we've talked about and try to steer people in terrible directions. And I pray that you guard us from that, that you keep us from the evil one, keep him from us, that these truths would take root in our hearts purely and grow purely and bear fruit with purity. Only you can help us with that, God, and so I pray that you would. In Christ's name.